Welcome everyone to Ramdas Here and Now. I'm Raghu Marcus, and before I get into this new episode, I want to uh, call out to our partner that uh, we have had, and you've heard me talk about them before, Eaton Hemp. And of course, their support goes a long way to helping us continue Be Here Now Network and this rather large family that we have now of uh, teachers and thought leaders. Eaton Hemp offers premium CBD tinctures and organic hemp seed snacks. And I personally vouch for CBD products. They have been helpful for me with both sleep issues that I might have had from time to time, but more particularly around inflammation and pain. And so I'm a big advocate of CBD, and I'm a big advocate, if you're going to use a CBD, that it be organic, obviously. So from seed to shelf, eaten hemp is totally organic. And, And by the way, they're the first farm to plant hemp in New York's soil in over 80 years. That's amazing. And um, so I just want to say, and of course, uh, the other value-oriented connection that we have with Eaton Hemp is these are farmer-owned. So they are connected to a family of farmer-owned farms that are, and, and their own farm. That's my conjecture, by the way. Of course, they do have their own farm because they're saying they planted hemp in it, first one in over 80 years. But uh, I know that what happens in these situations is there are different farms that contribute uh, to uh, getting the final product, which is, in this case, CBD oil. Uh, And uh, I just like the idea of family-owned farms and people connecting that way because we're losing our way, ain't we, folks? We're losing our way a little bit. So this, anything that we can do to support this, this kind of output by people who are connected to the land and providing food and resources to us, uh, we should do it. So there you go, Eaton Hemp. And what else do I got to say before we go into the episode? Uh, just that uh, we have our um, end-of-the-year Maui retreat in December, first week in December, and this is the first time that we will have been there since Ram Dass died, which will it'll be just about two years and uh, it's going to be a very uh, touching um, experience, I expect. It's called Legacy of Love Honoring Ramdas, and it will be uh, streamed, delayed streamed, live stream delay because of the time difference, etc. So uh, that is going to be on December 3rd, 4th, and 5th. If you are interested, go to ramdas.org and sign up. First of all, sign up to be on the newsletter, which is gives uh, an idea of all of the offerings that we have going, including this wonderful book that just came out. Jeez, that just appeared to me. I just got a copy myself yesterday. Words of Wisdom from Ramdas, but a beautiful coffee table kind of book that uh, Rachel Fisher, who you all know, I believe, from my Ramdas side, she put together this wonderful book of quotes. And she's been working on these quotes for like almost 10 years. And so she really knew which were the right ones that went with the right theme and could give everybody an opportunity to either start off your day really cool with something that rings all day from Ramdas, or just have it around where you can just kind of shuffle through it. There you go. Words of wisdom. We got it all in. We got it all in. So here's, this is a talk, 1994 from Ramdas in Detroit, Oregon. Oregon, and um, you know what's amazing in this thing, though? This is 1994, right? And 
so a, the, it's a Q&A, the whole talk. You know, there's some wonderful stuff around darkness and dealing with darkness and, and uh, using Prozac-type meds related to depression, uh, self-righteousness, psychedelics. It's quite a pastiche. So anyhow, but this one person talks about the Internet and, uh, and asks a, about his feelings of its efficacy. If you could imagine, this is you know, early 90s, the, just the burgeoning of it all was happening at that point. And so there's some really amazing comments that he makes about this. But the funny thing is, the woman who asked the question said... Gee, I heard you're going on a three-year retreat, and you know she was saying that made her very sad because she wouldn't be able to see him at that time. Ramdas was constantly touring, and uh, she said, "Gee, since you're going to do that, and look at this medium where we can connect online, and uh, how about coming on the internet and talking to us and hanging with us?" And I just looked at that and I thought, Jesus, look what happened. All these years later, Ramdas in Maui from 2005 till he left in 2019, almost 20 years. Well, it actually was 20. He was there in 2004. Anyhow, just amazing <laughs> that this, I, I heard, that I particularly heard this talk and from 94. Oh, God. Um, and I, uh, well, the psychedelics, it's funny, I was a psychedelics, of course, they were asking him how relevant that is in his life at that point. Um, actually, let me just, there's one quote that, yeah, you could hear this about 40 times and it still wouldn't be enough. And I, it's one of those things, when you listen to a Ramdas talk, and then all of a sudden, this, something just jumps out and grabs you. You may have heard it that many times, you know, 30, 40 times, until that one time that Sartori happens. Anyhow, he's, uh, he was talking about practice, because psychedelics is just an, it's another practice. And he was talking about his relationship to practices. And you know, Ramdas... He was very eclectic. He tried everything. And he talks about that as well in terms of, well, maybe I just don't have stick-with-itness or something. Um, so, but he said, ultimately, though, every practice shows me how I have conned the other practice. Okay? Just contemplate. Practice shows, you know, a new practice shows me how I've conned the other practice. What does he mean by that? socialize, like to socialize the other practice to not continue to grow. So you, we, uh, it's spiritual uh, bypass is very much part of this. We use that practice to enhance our ego and get fulfilled with rewards and uh, being uh, a role and identifying and all of it. And in that way, um, that could make your life real difficult, your spiritual path life, won't it now? So I just love that. And he said some really great things about uh, self-righteousness. And I mean, how we're just so all righteous about being right. I am the worst about that. And then, of course, you're judging when you do that. But I love when Ramdas talks about, I'm good. He says, I'm a really good person. And then, but he says, really, it stems that from the place where I'm identified with being a really not good person. Don't we all do that? Yeah, it's called a no goodnik. Um, and in my mind, that's the total phenomenal advantage that we can have if we get into the mindfulness perspective and it allows us to create enough space to see the reality of our judgments. Uh, am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I good looking? And you know, all of that kind of stuff. Until you get to the point where 
there is enough space around this so you're not believing in any of this judgment. You're not believing I am good, I am bad. And um, in what's so beautiful is Ram Dass talks about I am. We just get to that place, which goes back to be here now because you can't get to I am without being here now. And since this is the 50th anniversary of Be Here Now, the publication of it, and we've been, we, did that, we did a wonderful thing at the Wisdom, uh, this beautiful uh, dome in downtown L.A., and we showed this, these great VR movies and, um, and had uh, wonderful presenters, Jack Cornfield and Trudy Goodman. And, uh, Pete Holmes was there, Mirabai Star, Nina Rao, me, and... Uh, and at night had a great concert with featuring Krishnas and others. That will be available second week in December. We are just getting it all fixed up because we video recorded the whole thing. Boy, there's a lot of information. Sorry to throw it all on you, but uh, here we are. And this is Ramdas here and now gets caught up in self-righteousness and works out how it gets worked out. Well, as I examine self-righteousness myself, of which I have a large dollop, because um, uh, I am really so good I can hardly bear it. <laughs> I am really good. It's, it's really nauseating. Um, I see that it's because of the deep-rooted sense of feeling that I am not, that I am not good enough, that I don't even have a right to exist, that I have to constantly take a stance to prove that I am good, that I am righteous, that I am good. And um, so I see the psychodynamic nature of it. I also see the way in which it is a thought form. And uh, all I see is that as my meditative practice deepens and my mindfulness gets stronger, I see that quality of, um, of um, using situations to prove I'm good, or good enough, or that I'm right. The judging mind, I see the, the judging mind come up, which has in it that quality of righteousness, or unrighteousness. And uh, instead of climbing into it, I am mindful of its presence, and then keep coming back into my awareness so that it doesn't any longer, I'm not as obnoxiously righteous, self-righteous as I used to be. Um, uh, I think you're, you become aware how using situations to prove things about yourself is not a very deep nurturing quality for yourself. It's not a very interesting plane to end up working on all the time. And um, it cuts you off from people also because you're constantly in a judging mode, constantly in the world of objects. Of, Am I good enough? Are they good enough? Am I better than they are? Who's the best? All of that sort of thing. And that starves you. It ends up isolating you as somebody who is constantly in an alien or hostile world that you're constantly proving you're adequate and good enough and so on. And I think the, I mean, I remember going through a period of about a year when I had this mantra, I have a right to exist. I have a right to exist. Just like a tree, I have a right to exist. It's like, I am, I am, I am. And I started to look at the essence of I amness, not I am good, just I am. Not I am bad, just I am. Not I am enough or not enough, just I am. And it's a very interesting mantra, I am. I am. I am. You start to rest in isness. Not I am, but I meaning 
what's inside, the awareness is. I am. And you live in I amness, I think. And then you see righteousness and all these other thought forms coming and going. They're just another thought form, really, basically. They fall away in time. Um, what are you learning uh, from the psychedelic experiences that you uh, are doing in this uh, time period um, that provides you more or different growth than you gain from the other spiritual techniques, meditation and silence and walking and the other things that we're practicing here. What am I learning from the psychedelics that I'm not learning from my other practices? What I see is it's just another practice and, um, and each practice and that's part of why I have been rewarded, I think, for being an eclectic so much in my life. Each practice shows me how I have conned the other practice. You know, it shows me how I have found a way to socialize the other practice to not continue to grow. Very few practices have in them, or I don't have, let's put it this way, I don't have the tenacity with any practice to have it turn dead and then stay with it until it comes. I do, but I don't in the deepest sense of that's my only practice. See, a lot of people say you have one practice and that's it. And when it doesn't work, you trust it more and you go deeper. <clears throat> that isn't my style. And that's probably my major failing as a great spiritual presence. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'd sell all my methods and teachers down the river in a second. I mean, I, if, if they don't work, screw them. I mean, I'm, I'm out to get free. I'm not out to make everybody happy. And I'm not out to be a good meditator or a good uh, bhakti or a good uh, yana yogi or a good tantric yogi or anything. Um, it's like if you meet the Buddha, slay him. I mean, don't hold on to the concepts. Just keep evolving. And uh, I find that there are certain ways in which I get so... I mean, I'm such a con man. I can get so good at a practice that everybody in the group is saying, what an evolved person. I mean, it takes, it takes a really good teacher to see that I'm a phony. You know, and usually because I have some power, worldly power, and many of the teachers need something. <laughs> we make this kind of unholy alliance, you know, where don't pick on me and I'll give you what you want, you know? I mean, it's... <laughs> <clears throat> so these great, great teachers say, oh, Ramdas, you come sit up with me. You are a great, great being. And I know it's bullshit and they know it's bullshit. <laughs> but... <laughs> I mean, this, these are the horrible moments when you, you know, when your symbolic value is screwing up your, your, your learning situation. And to get a teacher that says, you know, you're full of crap, you know, and um, is, is rare. So I use um, methods to help me get straight with other methods, basically, is what I do. And so the psychedelics... Um, I think what I have seen is um, how colorful they may remain, but how irrelevant they have become. I really don't have, I mean, talking about LSD or, you know, the stronger psychedelics, I don't really see that they are critical to the process anymore. I think what they did was show a possibility. Once you know the possibility, to go see the possibility again and again isn't necessarily the transformative process. The process is finally to live in the world and keep transforming within the world. So I love them and I think they're wonderful, but I don't feel, I very rarely feel a pull to take them. I mean, now and then something new will come along and I'll say, sure, let's try. Um, not out of desperation, just out of, um, it really turns into almost celebration rather than need. It's different. It seems to me that there's some kind of pull to stay in the darkness. Even though you, you build defenses, I build defenses to not know it. Okay. There's something that keeps me there. And I think it's out of the fear that I'm not going to work through it. 
are not really feeling. Mm -hmm. So when do you know that? You're talking about the fear of, uh, of uh, getting out of the darkness, coming into light, for fear you won't succeed in doing it. You won't, why try? Um, what I hear in what you're saying is that uh, the darkness, which I assume is the nature of the constellation of mind, that's what's creating the darkness, is familiar. And even though it's not pleasant, it's safe in the sense that it doesn't threaten who you are. It's no risk. It's a low-risk situation. When you come out, there's risk. There's risk to a deep place of your own sense of safety. And you feel very vulnerable if you come out. And sometimes it's better to stay with the shadow. I think you arrive at a, a deep enough understanding of the nature of your predicament to realize that protecting yourself from that vulnerability is no longer worth it. There's a shift in balance that occurs. I watch people that say, I'm not going to come out, I'm not going to come out, I'm going to stay in. Fine, stay in. I even say, go in deeper, go ahead, you know, really nurture. Go into your room, close your door, get under your blankets. Not, I'm not talking literally, but I'm talking about within their shadow world. And then at some point, it just isn't worth it anymore. And I mean, I watch people over years, I mean, I'm talking 10 years, you know, in which finally, because, and I say, instead of trying to get out of the shadow, the dark, which I think reinforces the shadow, actually, reinforces the reality of it, is better to just do your practices. See, if somebody says, I'm having these terrible thoughts, and I don't know why, would you help me understand why? I'd say, I'd rather have you sit down and follow your breath. The breath has no content to it at all. It's just the breath. Better they strengthen the centering, the quieting, the presence, and then, rather than keep strengthening the problem, which keeps being reinforced when you work on it, and that's a very delicate question because I don't want to undercut times when it's really appropriate to work on problems as content. But for the most part, the focusing on the content of thoughts is to me a last strategy. It is a much better strategy to focus on the mechanics of thought rather than the content of thought. Do you hear that distinction? Because that's a very, very critical distinction. If you don't understand it, raise your hand because I'd like to have people really hear that one. We're dealing with the, the, like I'm caught in a lot of uh, thoughts about relationship, about this and about that, say. Now I can go to a therapist and the therapist will say, well, let's talk about your childhood and where did it come from. That's content. We're dealing with the content of the thoughts. Or I can just see these as more thoughts. They're just thoughts. Put them now in the category of thoughts, not what they're about. They're just thoughts. And what is my major game in meditation is to extricate awareness from identification with thought or with clinging to thought. So in order to do that, I will you go into my meditation practice, which in some cases might be taking one thought, like following the breath, and using it to free me from the clingings of other thoughts. So I'll start to follow the breath, and I'll, up will come, what am I going to do about that relationship? See, thought appears. And I hear the teacher say, return to your breath. I go back to breathing in, breathing out. Then another one comes and says, God, my life is a mess. Now, at that point, you can leave, call a therapist, go and say, let's deal with why my life is a mess. Or you say, okay, go back to the breath. Show your life's a mess. Go back to the breath. Rising, falling, rising, falling, rising, falling. And now... In other words, you can use the meditative practice to extricate yourself from identification with thoughts, whatever they are, shadowy or not. There are some thoughts that you won't get rid of that way because they're sort of in a nest or a web of stuff, and then you will approach them in terms of content. But my strategy is to go for the mechanics first and then go to the content 
later on when some content seems ripe to pick off. Like I've gone, I, I was meditating for 15 years, I think, and then after, and years back I had been in psychoanalysis and all that. And after 15 years of meditation, certain psychological things were clearly not getting, they just hung in there. But my awareness had developed great strength. And at that point, I went into therapy with a Jungian therapist. And for about three months, it was just great stuff. that I was just ready to pick off a lot of stuff. And that was about as much as I needed of that, that round. The more practices you've done, the quicker the working through will be. See, and the predicament of working through with the therapist is that if the therapist is not awakened to these other realms of reality, the therapist thinks that the, the, that the content is real, while a spiritual perspective sees the content as relatively real. Do you see the difference? Relatively real has the leverage to free you from it. Real means all you can do is substitute something else for it that's within that domain of reality. Is that too, do you hear that issue? So it's really important that you look for therapists or that you work with therapists or that you become a therapist who's rooted in these deeper parts of your being. That's a deep topic we'll talk about over time. Along that same line, I just read an article called Meditating on Prozac out of Common Boundary. And it was an interesting article because they had three or four different um, Buddhist practitioners, several meditation teachers who were also psychiatrists or psychotherapists who were saying that um, trying to distinguish between these dark nights of the soul and actual depression can be difficult and that uh, Prozac can actually help people work with their meditation better and I just would like to know what your thoughts are on that you, you have thoughts well the Prozac helps meditation yeah <laughs> <laughs> my meditation masters never had Prozac <laughs> The way I see, the way I hear it is there are certain psychodynamics that are so debilitating to an individual that chemically to calm them down, to get them into a space where they could meditate would be useful. I mean, I have people on manic depressive cycles that go into hospitals and then come out and go in and come out and so on. And they take medication that calms them and equals it, and so that they can function in the world. Then in the functioning in the world, they can start to do some spiritual practices, some practices. And then those practices start to feed back on the way they see the psychodynamics, and they start to loosen up on the psychodynamics, and then their medication starts to lighten over years. But I see how under certain conditions, medication can help the person get into a place where they can do practices where otherwise they couldn't because the thing was so obsessive. So I, I have some discomfort about Prozac, I must honestly admit. I have many friends that are using Prozac and swear by it. I have very, some deep concerns about the, the long-term use in terms of the nature of the affect of the individual, the nature of the creativity, a number of things, and I just don't understand a lot about it, but... I don't see it as the panacea for all things, I must say. Yeah. Do I work with Emmanuel? And no, I don't. I don't not work with Emmanuel. It's just that we haven't hung out. I haven't been with Pat Rodegast, who channels Emmanuel. Um, and I really felt that Emmanuel, I sort of got the message, and I really didn't feel the need to keep doing it anymore. There's a certain plane of information that comes that um, channeling, which is a very, it's very interesting how extensive channeling has become at the, in this culture. You could interpret it in a variety of ways. Um, if indeed all of us have inner wisdom that is available to us, you could say that the conditions 
in the world, in our world at this moment, whether it's the conditions, the confluence of fear or New Age or Aquarian or whatever, whatever it is, or the bomb or something, whatever the conditions, they have allowed more people to experience an inner wisdom coming through them, which because that wisdom is so inconsistent with who they think they are, they experience it as someone else than themselves. That would be one way of saying or talking about that, okay? Um, or you could say that these beings on other planes, that the interface, the, the, um, the, um, the boundary between planes of consciousness on which other beings dwell is becoming much more permeable than it's ever been before. So they're getting through. There's less static in the system. Maybe the information age, we're all on the superhighway. Hear your channel through internet, you know. I mean, it's like... uh, (laughs) um, And what I've cautioned in the past is that just because a being doesn't have a body does not mean they're wise, okay? And that's something that's important. Um, There are a lot of really... uh, there's a lot of schlock wisdom that comes through, quote, wisdom that comes through channeled information uh, that is really kind of a well-meaning glop, the way I see it. And there are books of it that I'm always asked to review. <laughs> and I can tell you that it's a lot. However, these, to me, Emmanuel was like, for me, having a very wise and friendly uncle. I didn't experience Emmanuel as a free being, but I experienced Emmanuel being in a different space in the universe of consciousness than I was. And I found that useful because he had perspectives about life that I didn't have that showed me where I was caught. So he was a useful method for me, And I think that the criteria you must ask is, is this useful for what I intuit as my needs for growth at this moment? without justifying who they are or where they come from or anything, but take the information or the vibratory feeling and see whether it's useful. And if it is, use it. Emmanuel's third book is coming out shortly. Questions? I see. I'm trying to get new people. Yeah. Um, I want to... Actually, I really do want to pack, because these are all the things I really want to know, and they are related... One is, in, you brought up the internet, which I've just recently gotten very, like, excited, like almost physically excited about. And this whole phenomenon of cyberspace and what it means for consciousness. And, and you know, like I have this sense that it means some huge kind of step in unification of people, consciousness being unified. So I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. And then connected with that is, I'd like, I hear this rumor that you're going to disappear for three years and write this book. (laughs) I'd like to, and I've heard rumors like that before, and they're always upsetting. I'd like to find out if that's true. And if it is true, would you consider going online? One of us went into a bookstore the other day and asked for books by Ram Dass, and the woman said, I know just what you want, took her to the computer section. Well, let's address the, the interconnected questions, inter- interconnected in your mind questions. <laughs> um, I have not had a, a tremendous amount of experience with virtual reality and cyberspace issues yet. Um, it is uh, a clearly a profound technology. 
um, I, I, I can't tell whether my sense that it's being oversold at this moment is the result of my own holding. It's like when I went from the typewriter to the computer, I remember how I resisted. And I wonder now whether you can teach this old dog one more new trick, you know. But um, uh, my experiences with it and my hanging out with, uh, um, what's his name, Lanier, um, uh, Jared Lanier, yeah. Jared's a lovely guy, very creative, very talented. But when I got into the stuff with him, I, um, I saw the potential use of this in, um, in uh, horizontal structures, like in psychotherapy, I saw it in education, and so on. In terms of liberation, um, it was a little murkier to me how it would work. Uh, I'm not close to it. I'm just not knowing at this point. Um, I mean, Tim and people like that, you know, tell me it's the it's the be all end all of all of it. But I look at them and they aren't. So if it was, why aren't they? You know, and so uh, <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> know a tree by its fruits. I, I sort of assume. Um, I had this experience where uh, we in the Seva Foundation used um, uh, a computer program for holding our meetings every day. We were each on 12 meetings. And these were meetings of the board which went around the world and the staff. And so we were not in real space anymore and we were holding these meetings. And because we were doing that every day, you create a whole, it is a psychological universe you enter into. And I was aware of certain ways that it, it was not nourishing to be in that relationship with everybody through that vehicle. Now, I don't know more than that, except that I know that what happened was if you plot the pattern of the content over time, the content shifted into more and more efficient communications and less attempt to be heartful. There was a, a kind of a, and I think it had a very profound effect on our interpersonal relations um, over time. I think it was a different place. And um, I mean, I can cons concern myself with the kids that are living in that cyber, the beginning of cyberspace stuff now with Nintendo and all these things, how much they are not developing certain social skills and developing others, but not developing those kind of social skills because they're living in a relationship to something else. But I don't know. I mean, that's the thing is, you know, the horse, the, you know, the horseless buggy is never going to work, you know, that kind of thing. And probably it shouldn't have, but <laughs> come to think of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, I think when a new technology comes along, we in the West are so much coming out of the myth of progress that we see new as better. And new is different. It's not necessarily better. And it may open certain doors and it'll close others. I mean, the, the nature of the computer chip has certainly changed all of our lives. And I don't think we yet understand how profoundly it has changed our lives. I mean, I'm learning it each year when I try to deal with my taxes. <laughs> how much they know, you know. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely awesome. <laughs> it has certainly changed my tax returns. I want you to know that. <laughs> I'm getting red. I'm embarrassed to admit that. <laughs> I found something that'll turn me red. What do you know? Isn't that great? <laughs> Good. <laughs> so, uh, but I can't yet. I mean, when I just try with the information age in general, the amount of information and the speed and the presence of so much information so fast, that's not virtual reality, but it's, it's, it's one of the components of it. I, 
I don't see any of our existing myths in our society that have yet adjusted to the way in which that's changed our understanding of time, for example. I mean, we're just not living as if that technology was present. And I'm sure when we got the car, we didn't live in that either. The car has basically changed our entire social fabric. I mean, one-third of the space of all of our cities is filled with stuff for the automobile. And it's a, it's a major consciousness issue. So, um, but I don't want to, like I've been asked three times in the past two months by three different sources in New York and Los Angeles and Santa Cruz to create a, um, what do you call it, a um, CD-ROM, 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 <laughs> cd uh, a CD-ROM DOS package. <laughs> now I can see how, uh, I mean, how incredibly powerful the audio tapes are. I mean, I see them, people using them in their cars, using them in their homes, and I'm not underestimating the incredible beauty that that technology has changed. I mean, Buddha didn't have tapes, and Christ didn't have tapes, and you know, all. Old teachings didn't have tapes, and this is just making it available so that when you're driving through traffic, you've got, you can be listening to something that is helping you re-see the traffic while you're doing it, which I think is just wonderful technology. And um, I've tried playing with uh, television. It's a hard medium to play with. It's a very hard medium to play with because the technology is very intrusive and the politics of it is very intrusive. And I found it uh, very costly, psychologically costly thus far. Maybe it won't be later, but it has been thus far. Um, when I play with something like... Um, I mean, people say, why don't you have a 900 line? <laughs> people can dial a thought for the day, you know, stuff like that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. I, each time it comes up, I listen freshly to hear it. That's about where I'm at at this moment. Okay. We're about to do something else. Huh? Oh, am I going to disappear? I'll know where I am. <laughs> it's that story of the guy in Seattle that got uh, uh, caught. Uh, yeah. He got caught with... Uh, a dispatch case with 200 false identities in it. And um, the problem was the police couldn't figure out who he was. And uh, they, he, he said to them, uh, it's your problem to find out. You're the ones that arrested me. I know who I am, you know. So, <laughs> um, That's really a complicated question. Um, I don't mean to be uh, cute or anything about it. There's a lot of variables involved in how one hears what one's dharma is and how one does what one's to do. There are ways in which, if I look at my strategy over the years, when Maharaji said, Ramdas, no ashrams, no monasteries, that turned out to mean for me you don't have to gather students. You don't have to have a scene where people are looking to you and dependent on you for something. And I interpreted that as a strategy where I would share everything that I could share about what's happened to me and what's going on. And then everybody's on their own. And I really felt that as a way of empowering people rather than disempowering, rather than getting them focused around me, pushing them away. And I've really cherished that over the years. I mean, I've really cherished that I have a very small cadre of people that work with me. And, um, but my, I don't really like building a, a perimeter of us and then there's them. I don't like that at all. I like all of us are us and all of us are us and so on. I really see that as counterproductive to do that. So um, that's one variable in it. The next is that um, 
I've been teaching now since 1956. I mean, that's a role I've been in. And uh, that role is a role. And while I play it quite lightly, it is still a role that um, it's not a lot of other roles. There is a way in which the whole issue of righteousness is involved here about, uh, you know, serving people. And um, just like I said that psychedelics show me where I'm stuck, stopping can show me how I've been doing something by not doing it for a while. And um, now add into that the variable that I'm 63 years old. My body's 63 years old. And um, in India, there are these ashramas or stages of life where there's ritual for really shifting gears. Okay, so that's another variable. And this might be a time to take a breath and shift gears. Then I read things like the Sin Sin Ming, or I mean three or four pages of wisdom writing by one teacher. That was his whole life's thing, was that turned out to be after that he left. And I look at, I'm doing my 10th book now. You know, and I think maybe if I shut up for maybe five years, I would really have something interesting to say. That's another one that feeds in. Uh, the other was that the last book I did, Compassion in Action, um, I hadn't expected to have to do as much writing on that as I did, but when I was forced to do that, I was in Dharamsala uh, with the Dalai Lama, and every morning in the hotel I wrote for four hours, and I wrote the thing, and that manuscript material turned out to be very good, and that was the first time I had ever considered myself a writer, rather than as all my other books were mainly tapes that had been edited of things I spoke. And a lecture is different than a writer. And the writer has a certain romanticism about it. And I thought, I think I'll become a writer, you know? <laughs> and a writer has, is neurotic and rushes to, you know, I think I may have to live in England for a while to <laughs> write this book. And, and so I'm kind of feeling my way into, I think I'll be a writer now. I don't, I'm, I'm not that Ramdas anymore. That was old. So these are all play forms. I mean, I'm sure that each moment I will respond to the existential situation. When somebody calls and they're in pain, I mean, what am I going to say? Come back Tuesday, you know. But you get rid of your telephone and you get rid of your answering email and the whole game changes very quickly. Yeah, I feel we're all in a dance together. And we all are playing the part that we hear for the moment we need to play. And that um, I can be true to my heart as a gift to everybody. I don't think that being true to my heart is, you know, even though some people say, oh, don't do that. I don't think that at the deeper level that's the response that's required. You have to know that what you said this morning and the way you said it and the love in this room, if you don't do another thing in your life, I think it'd be okay. Uh, well, I'm planning to bottle it, actually, and uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you, I appreciate that. I'll tell you, just um, the, the, the quality of this group and the process of our willingness to just dive in and slow down, I'm going in the, through other changes, I'm going through the change from being an entertainer I mean, to be in this role of sitting up here doing this and you all come and sit and wait and I get up and do something, it's very interesting in terms of what it traps you in or catches you in or can catch you in. And I've learned how to be very light about it, as you no doubt have noticed. I mean, I'm really quite light about it. But I still feel the requirement to be prepared responsible, conscious, and if, I, if the anxiety gets high, what immediately happens is I become academic. That's the way I respond to my anxiety level. The minute I feel in a safe space, and, and remember it's all us, and we are all lovers together on a journey, then I feel like I am the RAM, the rent-a-mouth <laughs> for us. I am a, just, I am a, just, a, I am articulating our collective consciousness. 
And when I feel that, I feel such grace in having that role to play. But see, I can't buy into people's projections because a lot of people in this room think I know and they don't. And that's their problem. They're busy being somebody who doesn't know. And they're using me to feed that model. Do you hear that one? And if I buy that projection, it's very cold and lonely in that role. And I don't have any intention of buying it, but I've got to be very conscious to not get caught in it and to play this part. So um, a, a situation like this, which is um, um, just very soft and very receiving, makes it really easy to, to stop entertaining and just share, slow down. I, I did this retreat in Germany. Uh, Suil and I were in Germany with Jai. And, and um, we had a translator. Um, and it was interesting. What I'd like to share with you is the following. <laughs> Planes of consciousness are very significant. Now, try that for about an hour. First of all, the, your, the, your lecture is half as long. So everything's got to get much more precise. So you really have to go for the essence of the thought each time. You have space to reflect while the translation's going on. So you can empty completely. And I got really hooked on it. It changes all your timing. I mean, all my jokes don't work. Everything that's based on timing, you know. <laughs> but it does change the nature of the feeling of the situation immensely. And uh, I really got... So I, when I went to England, I thought, I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. This evening, we're going to talk about, it lasted about four minutes. <laughs> it's very hard to do. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.